Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape, murder, and extreme violence that some people may find offensive. We advise caution for children under 13. On the evening of February 14, 1981, the village of Bamai, India, finally fell silent. But this wasn't a normal quiet. Even the air seemed to have fallen still. A little boy slid out from under the bed, brown eyes wide, as he slowly edged his way to the door and slipped outside. Off in the distance by the river, he saw his mother. She was kneeling on the hard-packed dirt road, head bowed. He ran towards her, eager for the warmth of her arms. But as he drew closer, he saw what drew her eyes towards the ground. Lying in front of her was his father. And not just his dad, so many others. All along the riverbank, he saw every young man from the village. They weren't moving. Their turbans were crumpled beside them in the dirt. Their limbs were splayed at strange, awkward angles. And they were covered in blood. The little boy knew what that meant. The bandit queen had exacted her revenge. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on Poolin Devi, India's so-called bandit queen, who was assassinated on July 26, 2001. Sher Singh Rana, an aspiring politician, confessed that he killed Poulin to avenge her 1981 massacre of over 20 upper-caste men. But Rana's vengeful killing was part of a far bigger battle raging across India between high and low castes. This week, we'll discuss the complicated history of class, violence, and revenge that led to Poulin's assassination and share Singh Rana's role in that story. Next week, we'll delve into the protracted, dramatic aftermath of the shooting, including Rana's decade-long trial and the public's suspicions that he wasn't actually Poulin's killer. We'll also explore what might have happened if Poulin had lived. The term St. Valentine's Day Massacre to most Americans evokes Chicago and the 1929 murder of seven mobsters. But to many people in India, the phrase is linked to another shockingly brutal story. In February of 1981, 
Poulan Davy, an 18-year-old dacoit, or bandit, stormed a small town called Bemai in the Uttar Pradesh region of India with a troop of 20 followers. She'd been held captive and repeatedly gang-raped in Bemai as a 16-year-old. And now she was ready to take her revenge. The small crew swarmed its way towards the town square. The stamping of their feet brought nervous townspeople to cluster at their doors. But the villagers were used to the bandits that populated the region. It was only when Poulan Davy broke from the gang and descended into the town well that the villagers started to feel real fear. They remembered her clearly. How could they forget the teenage girl whose agonized cries had rung through the streets just a year ago? But Poulan's voice, amplified by both a megaphone and the well, sounded very different this time. It had the echoing authority of a mythical avenging goddess. She demanded the townspeople hand over the two men who'd locked her in a hut, raped her, and beat her for three weeks. If not, they'd all pay. The townspeople were terrified. They knew the guns Poulin's men were holding were no playthings. They babbled desperately, pleading ignorance. They hadn't seen the men she was looking for in months. But Poulin was uninterested. She wanted blood. And if she couldn't have it from her captors, well, everyone in this village had played a part in her torture. Not a single woman or child had offered her a helping hand. But they weren't as bad as the men. Her captors weren't the only ones who'd raped her. They'd invited all the men of the village to participate in the torture. Now that Poulin was in control, she'd make sure they all paid. Poulin and her troop of bandits rounded up every young man in the town and walked them down to the river. She tore off their turbans and then she shot them dead as their wives and children watched in horror. This brutal act elicited a surprising amount of glee around India, mostly from the lower castes, who felt that Poulin was asserting the power of the masses and fighting for equality. The men she'd killed were high-caste Takurs. In the Hindu religion, which makes up close to 80% of the population of India, Caste means something similar to class in other parts of the world. The caste system, however, is more rigidly and explicitly defined than most modern class hierarchies. It's also older, going back nearly 3,000 years. The system is based on an ideology of karma, or work, and dharma, which can mean both religion and duty. Based on your actions in one life, you'll be born into a different place in the social hierarchy in the next. That means that over different lifetimes, there is opportunity for social mobility. But within any given lifespan, there is no cross-pollination between castes. The rank you are born into is the one you die in. Social position dictates everything from major life decisions, like who you marry, to daily habits and privileges, like which well you are allowed to draw water from. There are four major castes, the Brahmins who act as teachers and intellectuals, the Kshatriyas or warriors and rulers, 
the Vaishyas, or traders, and the Shudras, or workers. Beneath even the Shudras are the Dalits, or untouchables, who are outside the caste system entirely and perform spiritually contaminating work, like preparing bodies for funerals and killing pests. Within these groupings, there are about 3,000 specific castes and 25,000 sub-castes, which are generally associated with specific professions. And relations between the castes have not always been good. As with any social hierarchy, those at the bottom encounter discrimination in both their professional and personal lives. And in the late 20th century, they began to push back against the system that designated them as lesser people. Tensions were on the rise when on May 17, 1976, Sher Singh Rana was born into the Kshatriya's warrior caste, near the top of the social hierarchy. His family lived in the north of India, in a region that is today called Uttarakhand. Uttarakhand, India is beautiful, home to the Himalaya mountains, and sometimes called the Land of the Gods for its many temples. It also borders Uttar Pradesh, the state that houses a small village called Bamai. The village where Poolan Devi, a low-caste teenage girl, massacred more than 20 upper-caste Takur men in February 1981. Rana heard this story throughout his childhood. He was just five years old when the slaughter happened. And it undoubtedly made an impression on him, like many other young upper-caste boys. They saw the massacre as unacceptable, and not just because it was a murderous bloodbath. Rather, it was an example of an ongoing caste conflict. According to the National Commission for Scheduled Castes and Scheduled Tribes, whenever those at the bottom of the caste system have tried to organize themselves or assert their rights, there has been a backlash from the feudal lords resulting in mass killings, gang rapes, looting, and arsoning. In the mind of the upper caste, Poulin was just one example of an assertive, low-caste person asking for privileges that were not hers. But for many high-class Indians, the threat of lower-caste rebellion was about more than just traditional social order. Because caste is an integral part of the Hindu religion, many of India's high caste saw the oppression of the low castes as a spiritual right. Resistance and retaliation were not just dangerous in a worldly sense, they were a violation of a religiously mandated order, a violation that had to be avenged. These high-stakes conflicts inevitably made their way into politics. Tapping into the emotions surrounding the issue could help rising politicians win a political base. Sher Singh Rana watched with interest as politicians played on class tensions to advance their careers. By the time he was in college, he knew he could utilize those same conflicts to serve his own ambitions. In 1998, when Rana was 22, he contested a student election in Dehradun, the interim capital of Uttarakhand. In fact, he allegedly lodged a fake complaint about his own abduction in a bid to win students' sympathy and their votes. While there's not much information available about this episode, 
It's clear that Rana wasn't above shady schemes in the pursuit of his political career. There's also evidence that he was involved in criminal acts in his early adulthood, but he was never convicted. But however questionable his tactics, by March of 2001, at the age of 25, he was made a local representative of the Uttarakhand branch of Ekalavya Sena. Ekalavya Sena was a party formed by Poulan Devi, the bandit queen herself, to fight for the rights of the downtrodden. But Rana was most certainly not the downtrodden. He was a landowner in keeping with his high caste. He owned and ran a liquor store, as well as several other buildings. It seems likely that Rana took a place in Ekalavyasena not due to a spirit of reform and genuine interest in equality, but rather because it seemed like the first step in a political career. But he had a long way to go. He needed something big to rocket him from small-time local politics to India's capital in New Delhi. That something would prove to be Poulan Devi, the bandit queen and low-caste hero. Her name was one of the biggest in all of India. The name of her killer would be just as big. Coming up, we'll learn more about Poulan Devi, the bandit queen that Rana chose as his ticket to fame and glory. Now, back to the story. The high caste Sher Singh Rana wanted a career in Indian politics. In 2001, when he was 25, it looked like it might happen. He was made an office bearer of Poulan Devi's political party, Ekalavya Sena. But he was still stuck in the regional politics of his home state, Uttarakhand, and struggling to find his way into the big-time power-broking circles of New Delhi. Poulan Devi, the bandit queen, was already in those circles. But her route to the capital was circuitous, to put it mildly. Poulan was born on August 10, 1963, into the low Shudra caste, which comprised India's laborers. Her village, called Gorha Ka Purwa, was in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh. Her life started out like that of many Indian girls in those days, with child marriage. Even today, India remains among the top 10 countries with the highest rate of child brides. In 1974, at just 11 years old, Pulan was wed to a man three times her age. But by the time she was 12, it was evident that Poulan was going to do things differently. She ran away from her abusive husband and back to her home village, despite the shame she knew would be heaped on her there. She was right to anticipate that. Indian women were simply expected to bear their husband's treatment, whatever it might be. Even Poulan's family was disappointed and ashamed of the bravery that led the little girl to flee her husband's abuse. But this was just the beginning of Poulan's trials. In July 1979, when Poulan was 15, she was kidnapped from her village by a group of bandits, gang-raped and held captive. The leader of these bandits was the high-caste Babu Gujar, he was notoriously savage, but his cruelty to Poulan was likely amplified by her low caste. Thanks to his position in the social hierarchy, 
He felt entitled to treat her like a disposable object. Many of those in his band were also high caste. They, along with Gujar, raped their young captive with impunity. But not everyone in the band was pleased with the arrangement. One young man, Vikram Mala, could not stand to see Poulin treated so cruelly, probably at least in part because he, like her, was part of the low Shudra caste. He could not allow a woman of his own community to be treated so poorly. Disrespect to a woman of his caste was, by extension, disrespect to him. And so after three torturous days of captivity, Vikram freed Poulan. By killing Babu Gujar. Well, freed might not be the correct word. Vikram murdered Gujar, proclaimed himself the new leader of the gang, and claimed Poulan as his woman. The other men were not to touch her. Poulan was still a man's property, but it quickly became clear that Vikram's protection came with a measure of freedom and respect that Poulan had never before experienced. Their partnership extended beyond the bedroom to Poulan's new line of work, banditry or dacoity as it was called in India. Despite the fact that female bandits were extremely unusual, Poulan, with Vikram's blessing and guidance, joined her lover's gang on equal footing with the men. With some training in the rules and skills of banditry, she proved to be as good a shot as any of them, and as violent a criminal. The bandits robbed upper caste homes, held up trains, kidnapped, and even murdered. A kind of Robin Hood-esque philosophy guided their crimes, limiting their prey to the rich. Vikram, with Poulin at his side, was a powerful enough leader to convince even Babu Gujar's high-caste men to follow his rules. All of Babu Gujar's dacoits, who were in the field with him anyway. But some of the assassinated leader's most loyal men, a pair of brothers named Sriram and Lalaram, were in jail when he was murdered. The Ram brothers stewed with anger in their cells. A social inferior should not be leading their gang. They should be in charge now that Babu Gujar was gone, and they had plenty of time to plot their revenge while they were stuck in jail. Vikram and Poulan, however, weren't thinking about the Ram brothers. They were too busy leading the gang across its extensive territory. They operated all across the Chambal River Valley which included large chunks of North India's Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh regions. The legend of the gang's girl bandit spread even further than that. Poulan, under five feet tall and still just 16 years old, became notorious around the region, where she'd once been a powerless, abused Shudra child bride. She quickly began using her newfound freedom to avenge the wrongs of her past, in October 1979, the gang attacked her husband's village. She gutted the man who'd raped her as an 11-year-old child. He lived just barely, but he carried the scar she'd carved into his belly for the rest of his life. The people of the region started to sing songs about Poulan, spreading her story amongst the low caste through word of mouth. There was power and glamour to the myth of the marauding bandit girl. 
especially to oppressed people at the bottom of the caste system, her story seemed like a hopeful one, despite its violence. But after a year of wild freedom, Poulin's story took another abrupt, agonizing turn. The jailed members of Babu Gujar's gang, Sri and Lala Ram, were released from prison in the summer of 1980, where they'd been languishing while Vikram killed their leader and took control of the gang. They were ready to exact revenge. No upstart Shudra boy could get away with a betrayal like that and then go on to lead upper caste men on top of it. Their plan was simple enough. Under cover of darkness on August 13, 1980, they crept into the bandits' encampment. No one heard their footsteps as they wove their way amongst the tents and sleeping men, looking for their target. It was only when they pulled aside the flap to Vikram's tent that, in sleepy confusion, Poulin reached for her gun. But before she could find it, chloroform fumes softened her muscles. Her fingers dropped to the ground. She watched through a mounting haze as two strangers slit her lover's throat. In her final moments of wakefulness, all she saw was his blood, and all she felt was petrified horror. She wasn't just facing death, she was facing captivity. And this time would be even more brutal than the first. Poulan, barely 17 years old, was taken to the upper caste village of Bemai, where her two captors locked her in a dark hut. Then, for three weeks, they systematically beat and raped her, and invited the other men of the village to do the same. Not a soul in Bamai intervened to help her. Finally, after three weeks, Sri and Lala Ram left the village to take over the gang Vikram had been leading. But the villagers still didn't move a muscle to help Poulan. Their kindness went just far enough that they turned a blind eye when a priest from a neighboring village pulled Poulan's broken body from the hut and took her home. It took her months to recover from the abuse, but the terror she'd experienced didn't turn her away from the life of banditry, even if it only seemed to promise more violence. Poulan wanted her freedom back. She wanted revenge, bloody revenge, and she knew just how she was going to get it. As she slowly recovered, Poulin started gathering a small crew of bandits to fight with her, or rather, for her. Banditry was a bustling business in the region, and after her time fighting by Vikram's side, Poulin's legend was powerful enough to establish her credibility. She would be the leader of this new band of marauders, and their first crime would be avenging her abuse. In February 1981, they were ready. They would strike on Valentine's Day. What better day to avenge rape and dehumanization? With 20 men following her, 18-year-old Poulin returned to Bamai. She didn't get the chance to murder Sri and Lala Ram since they were nowhere to be found in the village. But she followed the guidelines Vikram had taught her kill 20 people if you're going to kill one. Such a mass killing takes you beyond shame and even beyond fame. 
it would put her squarely in the realm of immortality. The 1981 St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which left over 20 young men dead, certainly ballooned the myth of Pulan to new heights around the Chambal River Valley and through all of India. Many lower caste Indians saw her as their champion, a woman who refused to be mistreated by the upper castes. It wasn't just lower caste Indians who were awed by this fearless bandit queen. Some of the men who followed her in the next two years were themselves upper caste. The appeal of her triumphant story overpowered what's perhaps India's most trenchant tradition, the caste system. Most high caste Indians still saw her as yet another symbol of the dangerous rebellion. But regardless, Pulan was known all over the country now. Two years of successfully evading law enforcement only spread her name further. But Pulan was still just 19, a teenager. She had a whole life ahead of her, and banditry jeopardized that life. However skilled a leader she was, Violence was an essential component of this profession, and eventually it caught up to everyone. In 1983, two years after the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Poulin decided it was time to retire from banditry. But she had no intention of doing so without the same drama that had characterized her whole career. Coming up. Poulin leverages her fame to create a new life for herself. Now, back to the story. Poulin Davy was just 19 in 1983, but she was already famous around India as a bandit and a vengeful icon for the low castes. She understood the power of her fame, and as she prepared to retire, she was determined to parlay her infamy into a cushy deal. In February 1983, Poulin turned herself into the law with promises of protection for her family, a short stay behind bars for herself, and no more than eight years in jail for all of her men. For 55 counts of kidnapping and murder, Poulin received a prison sentence of just 11 years. But her star didn't dim when she retreated behind bars. Her fame only grew, in part thanks to the low-caste fans who had championed her since she first started whipping through the Chambal River Valley. Her name traveled even farther once she attracted the attention of renowned human rights activist Mala Sen. Mala Sen had heard Poulin's story, and it fascinated her. She visited the ex-bandit in her jail cell, and after the two women spoke, Mala Sen was determined that the world needed Poulin's autobiography. But there was one problem. Like many women at the time, Poulin was illiterate. In 1981, close to three-quarters of India's female population couldn't read. But Mala Sen couldn't spend all her time taking dictation from Poulin. And so the two women agreed on a workaround to get the story told. Poulin would dictate her history to fellow prisoners who could write. These inmates would pass on their notes to Mala Sen who would compile them into a biography. The book, titled India's Bandit Queen, The True Story of Poolan Devi, was published in 1991. 
It was a runaway success and melded with the long legacy of local songs and stories to feed the myth of Poulin Davy. Even the local government responded positively. Many of her crimes were pardoned altogether. In 1994, a film was made based on the book. Poulin was unhappy with the fact that the movie portrayed her gang rape with graphic, lingering violence, and the case raised important questions about how real rape survivors' experiences should be portrayed on screen. But regardless of the broader issues with the film, it increased Poulin's fame even more across India, and now, the world. When Poulin was released from jail in 1994, it was to streets lined with cheering, mostly low-caste fans. But her devotees knew their hero's time in prison marked the end of one epoch of her life. She was still young, barely over 30. They wanted to know what she was going to do next. Poulin had an answer. She was going to run for parliament. She decided to run with the Democratic Socialist Samajwadi Party. Their vision of a more equitable society aligned with her values. Campaigning, however, would prove complicated. Poulin needed to travel throughout her home state, Uttar Pradesh, to visit the low-caste villages and encourage her fans to get out and vote. But she wouldn't be able to avoid the high-caste residents of Uttar Pradesh entirely. And just as members of the lower classes had remembered her through her 11 long years in jail, so had the elites. Especially in Uttar Pradesh and surrounding states, upper caste people remembered the St. Valentine's Day Massacre of 1981 as clearly as if it had happened the day before. There were people there who wanted Poulin dead, as dead as those she'd killed in Bamai. But Poulin was confident that if she could live through the campaign, she could win a seat in parliament. The low castes represented 85% of voters in India, and many of them already loved her. They just needed a push to show it at the ballot box. Poulin campaigned surrounded by a motorcade of heavily armed guards. No high caste enemies could get close to her. No little boys who'd grown up hearing about her massacre could touch her. For now. While the upper caste seethed at Poulin's populism, the lower class celebrated her. In 1996, at the age of 33, Poulin Davy was elected to the lower house of parliament in a landslide victory. Poulin's election as an illiterate former female bandit and convicted murderer was unique. But as a low caste liberal woman, her political rise was indicative of a wider shift. For the first time in India's post-colonial history, the ruling castes had been kicked out of power by a government of moderate, liberal, and low-caste candidates. Things seemed to be changing. And, as always with change, not everyone was happy about it. Sher Singh Rana watched from Uttarakhand as Poulan Star rose until 2001 when he was made an office-bearer of Poulan's new political party, Ekalavya Sena. Poulin was famous, and for a young man who likewise sought fame and political success, proximity to Poulin seemed like a good thing for Rana, at least at first. 
As Rana considered India's stratified political landscape and his options for speeding up his ascent, he seems to have concluded that his path to notoriety wasn't in championing the low caste, it was in channeling the righteous high caste anger. As a high caste man himself, he'd grown up with that anger and knew it inside and out. While it's not entirely clear how much his own ideology motivated him and how much he simply saw the tension as a way to accelerate his career, he certainly knew how powerful a force resentment could be. We should mention here that while Sher Singh Rana would eventually be convicted for Pool and Davies' assassination, there is some doubt about whether or not he actually committed the crime. We'll get to the root of that debate eventually. But considering that Rana is widely considered to be the murderer, we're going to follow the version of events accepted by the courts. Rana made his way from the northern states of India to the capital, New Delhi, in the summer of 2001. July 26th dawned hot and sticky on the quiet, leafy Ashoka Road. Lined with the official residences of politicians like Pool and Davy, the neighborhood was known for being genteel and full of tight security. But no guards seemed to take note of the green car parked in the street outside Poulan Davy's house, or the three men sitting inside, tense and silent. All of them were high caste. One of them was 25-year-old Sher Singh Rana. Rana checked his watch repeatedly. 1 p.m. came and went. Almost time for Poulin to arrive home from work. Almost time to take the biggest risk he'd ever taken. He was going to be the hero now, the representative of the upper caste's ambition and power, the harbinger of a return to the old proper order of things, which he knew many of India's wealthy and powerful wanted back. Finally, at 1.30, a car pulled up to Poulin's driveway. The time was now. 37-year-old Poulin Davy got out of her car and walked towards her house. Two of the men in the green car pulled their masks down and burst out towards her. Poulin barely had time to turn before nine gunshots slammed into her body. She crumpled to the pavement, her hands grasping at her front door. The two gunmen threw their weapons to the pavement and jumped into the car. Within seconds, everyone in Poulin's house was rushing out towards her, but the men were already gone. Poulin Davy, bandit queen and political hero, was dead. But who killed her and why she had died? We're about to launch even more speculation and legend. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two to explore the aftermath of Poulin's death, the confusion regarding Cher Singh Rana's role in the murder, and how her legacy still lives on today. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, 
But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Andy Waits. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Nora Battelle and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.